My name is Bill Wellens. Um, Rob and Lloyd are both at the Brentwood campus this morning, so they needed someone to teach down here at Franklin. And uh, after the first 10 guys said no, they got down to me, and here I am. I'm glad to be here. Uh, those of you who don't, don't know me, I was on staff here at Fellowship for uh, 17 years, teaching pastor the majority of that time, and it really is good for me to be back, see so many faces that are familiar to me and some that I don't know, so I'd, I'd love to meet you um, over the next uh, uh, little while, however long, I'll be around some, and I'd love to get to know some of you better uh, as well. When I was a uh, kid, when I was growing up, I was a really good kid. Um, I, uh, I, I followed the rules, I respected my parents and other authorities. I, uh, I didn't lie, I didn't cheat, uh, I didn't drink in high school growing up, I didn't drink until I was 21. In fact, I read my Bible, I prayed, um, I went to church, I was baptized. Uh, there were a lot of things that I knew about God and I made a lot of good decisions. And, and yet there was something that was missing. I, I just sensed something that was missing in all of that. And um, it wasn't until I was in my late 20s, honestly, that I began to realize that I never really allowed God to penetrate the deeper recesses of my heart, where I felt vulnerable and broken and a little bit lost. I'll give you an example of that. My, my emotional life was never connected to my spiritual life growing up. And, and what I mean by that was, is this, I, I was afraid to feel I was growing up. Like, I, I felt like if you're sad or if you're mad, that, that was wrong. You know, Christians aren't sad or mad. And so when I felt those things, I just kind of stuffed them away, tried to hide them, tried to move on. I was just disconnected from my spiritual life. All those things, I just thought those, those don't matter near as much as other things. I never felt this deep sense of passion or desire for relationship with God, I, I just did relationship with God. Do you know what I mean? I just kind of did relationship with God. So my relationship with God was all about knowing something and, and doing it, right? Like I know some truth about God and then I go obey God. Those are really important things, right? Those are good things, but they were lacking in some ways. And so when I started feeling angry or sad or whatever, I started feeling ashamed for feeling angry and sad. And I didn't know what to do with all that. It wasn't until later that I realized that I was a whole lot like the religious leaders that Jesus describes in the Gospels, who are whitewashed tombs is the way he describes it. They're, they're clean and good and honorable and respectful on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. That was true of me. I didn't know I had a broken heart. I, I just knew that I wanted something more. Maybe some of you grew up like that, and maybe some of you grew up just the opposite of me. You were crazy wild growing up. You chased everything that you're not supposed to chase. You pursued all that the world has to offer, and you realized that that was empty too, right? That, that wasn't fulfilling something deep within your heart. That There was something missing. You had a, a broken heart as well. You know, it's, it's two very, very different paths, but they end up in the same place, don't they? You know, Robin Lloyd has spent the last seven weeks, we've been talking about this series, Wholehearted. What does it mean to have wholehearted life in Jesus Christ? And we started with the scripture and looked at what the Bible has to say about the heart. And we learned that the heart is not just an organ beating inside our chest, right? But the heart is the center of our whole being. 
biblical definition of the heart includes the mind and the emotions and the will and our actions. And, and then we described our mission statement. Our mission statement, wholehearted life in Christ. Well, we're going to glorify God and make disciples by helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus. Talked about our core values and how those things align us toward that goal. And then we said that wholehearted life includes four parts. We're going to put these up on the side screen so that you can see them. But wholehearted life in Christ includes our thoughts, our desires, our emotions, and our choices. And then Robin Lloyd helped us to understand what wholehearted life change is. They said the wholehearted life change, that is the theological term would be sanctification, how we become more and more like Christ. That process is the process of these four things uniting to find our deepest longings and greatest hopes are satisfied in Jesus. These four things uniting to find that our deepest longings and greatest hopes are satisfied in Jesus Christ. So think about me for a minute. I was living with thoughts and choices. I knew some things about God. I made some decisions about those, related to those things about how to follow God. Good things, but look, I never went below the line, right? To desires, soul level desires and emotions. Uh, some of you grew up and you went from your desires to choices. You, you had these desires, internal desires, desires of the flesh, and you made choices to try to satisfy those desires, but you never went up into thoughts to discover the truth about God, right? So they're different. As we were going through the series, so I was thinking about all this, trying to piece it together, and I started thinking about what, where are the stories in the Bible, the interactions with Jesus in the Bible, where he addresses the whole heart, where, where people are transformed, not just half-hearted, like maybe me and you, but wholehearted transformation. Where does that happen? And my mind went to one of my favorite. I just love this, this passage. is the encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. And, and I had, of course, studied this passage. I, I knew some about the passage. I had actually taken um, uh, principles from the passage and applied them to my own life, but I had never looked at this particular encounter through this four-part lens. And I'm not sure that I had ever allowed it to fully penetrate my whole heart. For sure not in the way that the woman does here. I, I don't think that's been true for me until these last couple of weeks. You see, wholehearted life in Jesus is not just what we as a church are about. It's what Jesus is about. And I want you to see it this morning. It's incredible. It's marvelous. It's beautiful the way that Jesus engages this woman's whole heart, how he appeals to her thoughts and her desires and her emotions and her choices. And so I'm going to read it. I'm going to ask you to follow along with me as I read. It's in John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, turn there. Um, I'm going to read a section of scripture that is a little longer than we typically read. So I'm going to ask you to stay with me on that. And, and I'm going to ask you this as well. I want you not just to listen to the story uh, for the content, like what happens in the story, that's important, but I want you to try to enter into the story. Uh, you might imagine yourself like a bystander that's some distance away watching this interaction between the Samaritan woman and Jesus. And as I read it, I want you to think about what, what do you notice about the interaction? Um, where do you sense the emotion? Where is she dissatisfied and longing? Where is Jesus appealing to her? Where does Jesus take her to a deeper place in her heart? So listen for those things as I read and just stay with me as I go all the way through it. I'm gonna pick it up in verse three. So chapter four, verse three. Jesus left Judea, went away again to Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being weary from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman from Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all this way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say, In Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming where neither in the mountain nor in, the, in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, why do you seek? Or what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot, went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Okay, thanks for hanging with me on that. Here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to take these four quadrants, these four boxes, and we're going to put them up here on the screen, and you'll see them. We're going to kind of work this way in a U shape. It'll be thoughts and then desires and then emotions and then choices, and you'll see the sections of Scripture. We're just going to follow the Scripture in terms of how Jesus goes after her heart, okay? And I'm going to do this in, in this way, and then at, at, in each of the sections, um, uh, at the end of the first section, I'll give you a phrase that helps us to understand where Jesus is going here. What he does is he pursues our thoughts. I'll do the same with desires, and at the end, we'll grab emotions and choices as well, okay? So let's begin in that top left box first. Jesus challenges her thinking. This is where he starts, okay? Now, how does he do that? Well, he does something that completely disrupts the cultural status quo, okay? He asks her for a drink, 
And we're thinking, okay, why, why, why is that so wrong? <laughs> Jesus asking for a drink. He's thirsty, right? Well, why is that so wrong? Well, there's a whole lot here behind the words. And it's not so much about the drink as it is who he is asking. Okay? He's breaking all kinds of cultural norms here. So, so here's the first. This, this is a man who's speaking with a woman who is not his wife alone. Okay, that, that's outside the boundaries of religious practice. And this second, and this one's far more important than the first, but this is a Jew speaking to a Samaritan. And, and that's where the tension in this text lies. That's the tension that the woman's feeling right here. You see, Jews and Samaritans, they have this intense hatred for one another. And there's lots of reasons why. I'll give you a couple of them here. There's, there's political reasons and social reasons and there's ethnicity, there's issues there. There's all kinds of reasons, religious reasons. But let me give you just a couple here so you get the gist of this. Uh, first of all, let me say this. There were Jews that were living in, in what is Samaria now. So Jews here, then Jews in Judea. And I'm going to show you actually a map of this here in just a minute. But there are Jews here, Jews here. When the Assyrians came in and took over what is Samaria in our text, it was the northern kingdom of Israel at the time, the Assyrians intermarried with Jews there, and they became Samaritans. The Jews, they continued to intermarry in Judea. They continued to intermarry with each other, um, not like cousins and family, but with each other, Jews, fellow Jews. So we had Samaritans here, Jews here. Well, the Jews here in Judea viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds. They called them dogs. Major issues there because of the intermarrying with the Assyrians. We also have major religious issues, and, and, and in fact this... The Samaritans, and we see this actually in the text, the Samaritans believed that the temple of God should be at Mount Gerizim. Jews believed that the temple of God should be in Jerusalem. In fact, so much so, they were so upset by this that the Jews, just about 150 years before this, went into Mount Gerizim and wiped out the Samaritan temple to God. Okay, so we've got massive issues here. So bitter they don't even talk to one another, which is the point here. It's kind of like Alabama and Auburn fans, right? Only Jesus is different. Jesus is a Tennessee fan. Okay, no, it's not stupid, right? Look what Jesus does beginning in verse three. It says, Jesus left Judea, went to Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to. It's an interesting choice of words there, isn't it? And I don't want to make too much of this because we don't know all that Jesus is thinking here. But I do want to show you this, and this is that map that I mentioned. So we're going to put this up on the side screens, and it's going to be hard to see, so I'm going to kind of walk you through it. But this is important for us to understand. Okay, in, in the bottom there, kind of the southern end of the map is Judea. Okay, at the very top end is Galilee. Jesus is headed from Judea to Galilee. That body of water at the top is the Sea of Galilee. So that's the direction. Get the gist of this. All in the middle is Samaria, okay? And and so what Jesus is saying is that he had to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. So I'm gonna show you the path, and this would make the most sense. This was the shortest path from Judea through Samaria to Galilee, okay? So that makes sense. So why is that such a big deal? Well, here's why. Because the most pious Jews, when they went from Judea to Samaria, I'm going to show you this route as well, they went east across the Jordan River, they went up the border of Samaria, then back west across the Jordan River and into Galilee. And they did that because they didn't want to set foot even in Samaria. 
So you can imagine we've got some bigotry and hatred and racial issues and ethnic issues today that are majorly tenuous for us today. This is hundreds of years old. They don't want to set foot in that territory. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because he had a divine appointment with a Samaritan woman at the well. Because there was a woman in Samaria who had a broken heart. So Jesus arrives at the well. The woman comes to get water. Jesus opens his mouth, and as soon as he asks for for a drink, he challenges everything that she knows to be true about relationships with Jews. He got her thinking, right? Now, I want you to look at the way that she responds. Look in verse 9. Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? And then John comments here, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans there. We see it again, the issue between Jews and Samaritans. But I want you to grab the first part of this question, how. See, how is a thinking question. Think about how we use it today. How how is it that I get from my house to your house? How how is it that you built that engine? How, how, How is it that Jesus could be talking to me? That's a thinking question, right? Now, look at how Jesus responds to her. Another key word here. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew, there's the key word, the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. New thinking word we know in our minds, right? So here's Jesus, if you knew the gift of God, that is me, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink. If you knew the truth of who I was, you would be asking me. Here's the principle here, and this is really important. Wholehearted life in Jesus always starts by naming what's true. We know in our minds. Jesus, what does he do? We see it right here. Jesus names what's true about him. This is who I am. And Jesus names what's true about the woman. I'm here to get a drink, but it's actually you who are thirsty. She's thinking. So we'll just put this in the first square up here. Jesus names what's true. Okay, let's look at the second in desires. How does Jesus address her desires? And it doesn't take long for Jesus to do this. It doesn't take long for him to go to a deeper place in her soul. And I'll go ahead and put this phrase up as well so you can see it. This is what Jesus does. He identifies her thirst. Okay, pick it up back with me in verse 11. She said to him, well, he's just said you would have been given living water. She says to him, verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw and the well's deep. Where do you get this living water? not greater than our father Jacob gave us the well. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman, verse 15, said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. Now, let's talk for just a minute about being thirsty. We understand this. Jesus has been traveling all morning. We know this from Judea to, to Galilee, right? He's, this is a very arid, it's part of the desert. It's still the same climate today. would have been hot. Jesus would have left at daybreak when they, when they were going on a journey. They would go to bed the night before early. They would rise early and travel this distance. Um, the sixth hour of the day is noon in first century AD. So he probably would have been traveling for about six hours. 
Uh, regardless of when he went, left, it would have been a long period of time. Gets to the well, says he's weary and he's tired and he's thirsty. He's very thirsty. You can imagine this. When we have a long, hot day, there's nothing like the, uh, you know, of a cool glass of water. We can imagine what this was like. Only Jesus takes this and he turns the tables by speaking to her need, not his. It's his physical thirst that is actually the gateway to her spiritual thirst, right? And her need is much greater than his. Her desire, her longing is much deeper than his. She's looking for something that truly satisfies beyond the temporary satisfaction of water, a longing that she hasn't been able to quench and wouldn't be able to apart from him. And so when he goes there with her, she responds in two different ways. First, she says, give me the water, right? There's desire. I want the water. Then she started kind of backing up, and I'll show you this, but she starts kind of backing up, and she says, well, I'm not quite sure where this is going, and I'm a little confused by what living water is. And so she actually redirects the conversation back above the line, and she does this twice. She does it in verse 12, and then again in verse 15. In verse 12, she says, living water, uh, okay, well, you don't have anything to draw from the well with, and it's really deep. See, like, a uh, heart issue. No, 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 we're back. I, I don't know how this is going to work. In verse 15, she says, thirsty. I am thirsty, but maybe that just means that I'll just not have to keep coming back here to this well to get water. Do you see that? She, she just keeps redirecting it above the line. She won't quite let her heart go there. And before we start looking at this lady like, hey, lady, you're talking to the Jesus, you might as well just go there because that's what I was thinking when I first read it. Um, I, I want us to think for a minute about our own lives. Now, I want you to think for a minute about when the Spirit of God's at work in your heart and you're uncomfortable and you're not sure where he's going and there's some pain in your heart. He's trying to restore and help heal that pain. I, I want you to think about where we want to go. We, we want to bounce from there back to our minds, right? We want to try to reason our way out of it, like, oh, this isn't near as big a deal. I've done other things that are way worse. Maybe this isn't the Spirit of God speaking to me anyway. We, we go there, we try to begin to rationalize what's going on in our hearts so that we won't have to feel uncomfortable or pain or guilt. We go there, so it's just like, maybe, maybe if I go to my head, I can think my way out of this. But if I stay down here, it may really hurt. I was very aware of this about uh, 10 days ago or so. Someone that I love really dearly uh, came to me and confronted me on some things in my own life that were related to this person. Some ways that I'd hurt them very, very deeply. And um, as, uh, as, as they were sharing this with me, I, I found in my own heart just this desire to go, I just want to hear this. I want to sit with it. I want to hold it. In fact, I told him in the conversation, I just said, I don't know that I can respond yet, but I want to. So just give me some time to do that. And just, I was just trying to hold the tension. And I just have to tell you this. These last 10 days have just been this. It's been like, oh, Lord, show me what you want me to see. Help me to own it. And she didn't know the half of it. Um, my gosh, if she didn't include the whole story, um, my goodness, like this is, uh, let's talk about her issues as well. Like you see what I'm saying? Like all in my head trying to reason it away. Do you understand that? Like there's tension now. Are some of these true? Probably. But is this what the Lord is inviting me to deal with? Yes. 
That's the tension with, we feel, and that's certainly the tension that she finds, or that Jesus finds here with the woman at the well. You see, even though we're thirsty, it can be very difficult to allow God to fully quench our thirst. It can because it requires genuine heart change. So we want to take little sips of change, like behavioral modification. We want to go, well, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say that the way I said that before, just a little sip. Or maybe I shouldn't quite act that way with my wife or my kids and just a little sip. And I'll modify my behavior so that I'm a little bit different, I'm a little bit changed. But it's so hard to drink deep of the deep heart transformation that God invites us to. It's what I wrestle with, and that's what she wrestled with, with as well. She's not ready to go there, and of course, Jesus cares far too much about her to leave her in that place, and so he gauges her emotional life. This is that third quadrant down there at the bottom left. How does Jesus engage her emotional life? Well, he goes after the most tender, vulnerable, emotional place in her heart, her sin and her shame. She says to him, give me the water. He says to her, go get your husband. It's like, Jesus, she's finally asked for the water. Just give her the dang water. Like, <laughs> just say, like, gosh, she's thirsty. Go get your husband. Now, we need to talk a bit for a minute about why he does this here and understand a little bit of the context for it. The woman has gone to the well in the middle of the day alone. There's two problems with that. The first is, is that no one goes to the well in the middle of the day. No one goes to the well in the hot of the day. It's too hot to go to the well. And the women of that day and age went to the well in the early morning to have, in the cool of the day, to have water for the day. And they went in the evening to have water for the night. It just doesn't make sense to go to the well in the middle of the day, which would have been a long walk for them. So that's the first issue. The second issue is that no one goes to the well alone. They went together. It's, it's like women gathering together now to have coffee or to work out or whatever it might be. They went together. There was a social aspect of the women going to the well. It was communal life together, only it's not for this woman, is it? And we find out why. It's because she's had five husbands and the man she's living with now is not her husband. Now, today, we think about that, and we know people who've had multiple marriages. Their husbands have died or they've been divorced. It's a little bit more common today. In this day and age, she could have been killed for that. You see, the religious law, the law was that you could have three husbands, but only if the first two had died. Now, we don't know what happened here. We, we don't have the details as to whether these husbands died or whether they divorced her or whether she was very promiscuous. A lot of scholars believe that. We don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is that her story is a mark of significant shame in her life. That's what we know for sure. People in the community would have known her story. And she's so ashamed of her story that she's literally trying to hide in the noonday sun. Do you see that? Maybe people won't see me going to the well. Maybe I won't be known in the heat of the day. Only there's a problem. Jesus is sitting at the well, right? He speaks to her. He appeals to her parched soul. And then ever so gently, he goes after the most sensitive raw, painful place in the recesses of her heart. And you know she's thinking, how could he know? How could he know? 
And again, she tries to say, change the subject. It's like, wouldn't you? <laughs> like, yeah. She tries to change it again. She says, Let, let's talk about worship. It's this whole section on worship. I, I think Samaritans are supposed to worship here, and Jews are supposed to worship here, and Jesus ever so graciously and kindly guides her through a conversation about worship, about true worship, about true worshipers. He guides her back to a conversation about himself. He actually is the object of true worship, so he steers the conversation back, and he steers it back to her guilt-ridden, shame-filled, empty heart. And finally, in verse 25, she cracks. Here's what she says. I know that Messiah is coming the one who is called the Christ. And Jesus says to her, I am he. And I am here by divine appointment. I'm not here to shame you. I'm here to heal you. I'm here to make your broken heart whole. There's no living water in relationships with other men. You've been drinking of that well for a long time and you continue to thirst again. No, there is only living water. There is healthy relationships. There is a satisfied soul, and that only comes through relationship with me. I am he, the Christ, the Savior of the world. And as those words hang in the air, he invites her to make a choice. What are you going to do with me? And she does make a choice. And I love the way this, that John describes this. In begins in verse 28. By the way, if you're studying your Bible and you're not quite sure what's, what the movement of the text is or where it's going, read the verbs. There's a lot of action in the verbs. We certainly see that here. So the woman left her water pot by the well. She went to the city. She said to the people of the city, come and see, come and see the man who's told me all I have done. Could it be, I think it is, the Christ. She walked right into the town square, right into the guilt, her guilt and shame, right out of hiding. Can you imagine this? She walked right out of her hiding and she told her story and they came. They came to see Jesus. Now, I want you to look at verse 39 because I want you to see how this, this whole text ends. In verse 39, John says, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him, that is Jesus, because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. Many believe because she made a choice to tell her story. Many believe because she came out of hiding. Many believe because she engaged her guilt and shame. Many believe because she trusted in Jesus Christ and her choices transformed a city. Now this is interesting. Uh, she's in the city, Sakar. Uh, there's another city nearby, but they're very close, so they would have shared some community life. When Jesus uh, died, uh, was buried, resurrected, and left the earth, he looked at his disciples, we all know this, go into all the earth, make disciples, baptize them, go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So th there's the issue again, right? Judea, Samaria, we're going there too. Samaria, then the ends of the earth. Now, when they actually go, Philip goes to Samaria. He goes to either Sakar or this town next to it. And when he gets there, he gets the gospel message gets one of the warmest receptions of anywhere they go. Now, why would that be? Because there was a woman at the well who told her story, right? Because that Jesus had a divine appointment with the woman at the well. Wow, 
This is incredible. So we've said here, Jesus names what's true. Jesus identifies her thirst. Jesus, in the emotional life, Jesus heals her shame. And then finally, she tells her story. So we'll pull up those last two slides because I want you to see them as we begin to talk about application for you and me. Now, let's do that. Let's talk about application for you and me. We're a lot like the woman, aren't we? We hide in our shame. We guard parts of our hearts. We grow uncomfortable with the life of Christ as God begins to change us. We push back and try to move back to our heads to rationalize and reason things away. Yet, we're all thirsty for more than this life has to offer. We're thirsty. We all long for the kind of freedom that the woman experienced with Jesus. So here's what I want to do in terms of application. I'm going to take us through these four boxes, these four quadrants. I'm going to ask a question or two about from each quadrant. And, and um, I just want you to personally, prayerfully reflect on these questions before the Lord in your own spiritual life. So this will be kind of a prayerful time. It'll take us four or five minutes to do it. So just settle in uh, to do it. And, and I want to say this before we do. I mentioned it before. Jesus had a divine appointment with a woman at the well, right? Here's what I believe. I believe that Jesus has a divine appointment with you this morning. I really believe that. You see, you wouldn't be here unless you wanted something more. You wouldn't. I believe Jesus has something more for you. I believe that Jesus wants you to have a whole heart. In whatever aspect of your life that the Spirit of God might be working in this morning, I believe that He wants to make your heart whole. So go with me here prayerfully before the Lord. If you want to, you can bow your heads. You don't have to. You can just follow along with me. But I do want you to think. And I want you to think about each of these quadrants. And here's the first. We said in our thoughts, Jesus names what's true. And we know this from the text. He names something that's true about him. And he names something that's true about her. And here's where I want you to begin. I want you to name something that's true about your spiritual life right now. Okay? Just go before the Lord and name something that's true about your spiritual life right now. And after you do that, I want you to think about Jesus in the story and something that's true about his character toward the woman. Something that's true about you and something that's true about Jesus in the story. Okay, take a minute and do that. Jesus identifies the woman's thirst. Here's the question. What are you thirsty for? What are you thirsty for that only Jesus can give? 
go a little bit deeper here in the story. Jesus identifies the woman's shame. What is something that you're ashamed of? Maybe it's something that you're guilty of. God's inviting you to repent, experience his forgiveness. Maybe it's something that you've been ashamed of for a long time and you've tried to deal with. For whatever reason, it just stays on you. You haven't been able to let it go. Would you name your shame? Give it over to Jesus and invite him to heal your broken heart. Take a minute and do that. when the woman came face to face with Jesus she began to see him for who he really was she had to run and tell others about him she made a choice what choice is the spirit of God inviting you to make today what is it that you need to go do what is it that you need to stop doing as it relates to what the spirit of God's been doing in your heart would you ask him to show you what choice he may have you make today where you'd like to pray with someone at the end of the service. Uh, there will be people right down here. You're welcome to do that. We're not going to draw attention to you in any way. You can just slip down here and, and pray as we exit. Uh, I want to end with uh, another passage from John. Uh, Jesus makes it to Galilee as he intended. He makes it there. They're celebrating the Feast of Booths. And when he gets there, he says this on the last day of the feast. On the last day, the great day of Jesus, Jesus stood, or great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. May we drink deep of that well. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.